G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're going to open our talkback line shortly. So if you can destroy the credibility of the Gospels, you can attack the credibility of God and even the structure of Christian belief. It would be fairly common sense to make that sort of statement. The importance of Gospel truth is that the Gospels are historical truth. So let's open a conversation today with an internationally renowned expert on the ancient history surrounding the Gospels. Paul Barnett is one of Australia's leading theological minds. His new book about to be released in May is called Making the Gospels Mystery or Conspiracy. Paul Barnett is an honorary associate in ancient history at Macquarie University, a teaching fellow at Regent College in Vancouver, and emeritus lecturer at Moore College in Sydney. He's also a former Anglican Bishop of North Sydney, and so I want to make a special welcome to 2020 to you, Paul Barnett. Great to be with you, Neil. Uh, Paul, not our first conversation, and so looking forward to some of the wonderful treasure of insights that you're able to bring when it comes to these issues. Your book is called Making the Gospels, Mystery or Conspiracy, and some of the sorts of things that you talk about in that is uh, obviously these very controversial attacks that people have on the Gospels. Is that the motivation for actually putting this book out? It was one of two motivations. Uh, the other one was simply to try and work through how it all happened. And in the course of um, thinking about that, I was confronted once again to the alternative theories that are out there. Okay. Now, there might be listeners uh, who uh, will like to enjoy uh, participating in this conversation, and uh, we're happy to talk about anything here. There's no uh, no question we can't talk about. We can uh, we can just unpack all sorts of things here. Uh, you're happy to address whatever listeners uh, might bring to you? I'll do my best, Neil. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, you know, there's the invitation to listeners about the Gospels in the Bible. Of course, we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We could be talking about the whole Bible here, and uh, no doubt you're well-equipped to defend the whole Bible, Paul, but you've made your focus on the Gospels because this is where we get the historic truth about Jesus. Is that the, the importance of the Gospels? Well, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, and the Christian testimony in the Gospel of Jesus points back to him. So he, Jesus is the centre of the Bible and obviously the centre of Christianity. So if you destroy the credibility of Jesus as a historical figure, then you, you basically reduce Christianity to just a set of nice ideas to a kind of myth. And uh, the, the historical reality, however, just won't let you do that. There's a stubbornness about the facts which prevent you from reducing Jesus to a mythical figure. 
Let's talk your own story here because there was a time when you didn't have the same confidence you do have now in the Gospels as truth. Uh, take us back to some of your early thinking and uh, and the way that you were came, came into a, an appreciation of Bible truth. Neil, I, um, my conversion, which was a while ago, uh, was very real to me. And um, But I had the question whether it was based on reality and truth. I'm, you know, a bit, bit I'm someone who likes to think about things and uh, to be sure. Uh, but my new Christian friend said, oh, yes, Paul, it's true. There have been other been professors who are Christians who've, who've written books like F.F. F. Bruce. And uh, he wrote a book called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? And I had a look at that, and um, so I put the question to one side, but I still had the question. Well, after the Billy Graham crusade in 59, I applied to go to Moore College study to become a minister, which I did in 1960. It's a long while ago. And I did four years of, you know, theological studies there. But when I thought about it, I thought, the question is still there. And even four years of good theological training didn't really address the question in a way that answered it for me. So I was appointed as a junior lecturer, and the principal of the college said I should do some more study, and I enrolled in ancient history in Greek uh, at the University of Sydney. And it was during an ancient history lecture on one of the Roman emperors, Tiberius it was, when the sort of an epiphany moment, a penny dropped, as it were, when I realised that there was approximately 80 to 100 years between Tiberius, the emperor, and the first real written information about him in Suetonius. And then I thought, gee, the time between Jesus and the first gospel, namely the gospel of Mark, is about 30 years, give or take a year or two. And then I began to think about this whole question of lead time and when you put into the mix the letters of Paul, the earliest of which is probably written only 15 15 years after Jesus, um, and suddenly the relativity between Jesus as a historical figure and the documentation about him turns out to be actually quite sensational. And it was that sort of light bulb moment that really um, switched me on to pursue this issue further and to explore it and to do several higher degrees in that area and and then to write about it. And uh, as part of that, I take educational tours in Greece and Turkey, Jordan and Israel and Egypt and have repeatedly visited these uh, places where these events happened and I, th- I found that not only did the history sink, uh, synchronise, but the geography as well and the climate and all those other issues that combine to make a historical record uh, have left me in absolutely no doubt that the only explanation for the Gospels is the genuine figure of Jesus, a, a rabbi, but the Son of God who was crucified and was raised from the dead. And uh, I think on any historical grounds, 
you are you are you are on very solid historical grounds if you affirm the truth of that. Well, Paul, take us back to your thinking on the first century, and as you say, around about thirty years between Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, to the first of the Gospels, which would have been the Gospel of Mark. Some people will be still thinking, well, 30 years is a long time. Uh, How did, do you, and how do you describe this, how did the sayings of Jesus, uh, the stories of Jesus, uh, develop and and, uh, become crystallized in people's thinking uh, in between that, uh, that time? of his ascension to the time when finally Mark had all of those written down in his gospel. Yes. Well, I think I've come to the conclusion that Jesus taught in both Aramaic, which is one of the languages of the area, but also in Greek. I've I've become convinced through the writing of this book that Jesus addressed people in both languages, depending on the particular village or township where one language or another might have had a precedence. I also think that it's highly likely that Jesus, being such a skillful teacher, uh, and he used um, aphorisms and rhyming and parables and stuff like that, and told his stories more than once, that people remembered the actual stories and sayings that he gave. But I also think it is highly likely, because we know that a number of the disciples were literate people, that uh, what he said was actually copied down. So that um, as soon as the early church started, uh, the, the first Christians began busily putting together collections of his sayings and writings um, and events and stuff like that. And they they were the kind of fodder, the feeding means of feeding these early congregations that very soon came into existence. And then uh, after a period of time, uh, these um, oral sayings, as it were, uh, became written down uh, because we we need to remember that first century Jewish community was very much a writing community. Uh, they they had the written law and the prophets and other writings and so there was a high level of literacy among the first Jews and so the first Jewish Christians would have been used to going to meetings like synagogue meetings and having writings read to them and I believe that these first Jewish churches in Palestine when they met together they soon had collections of Jesus deeds and sayings which were written down for them in in the passage of time uh, these various shorter collections of sayings deeds and teachings were put together in the gospels first of all the gospel of mark and then matthew and luke and around the same time john so the, the gospels i think were written in a period between say 65 and 80 give or take a few years and so therefore the process that began with Jesus' actual ministry, um, as it were, reached a, a climax in terms of the creation of the four Gospels. And then we went, when we move into the subsequent uh, centuries, we find numerous manuscript references to all these writings, in fact, thousands of them. 
thousands is the issue here because when we talk about other great figures of ancient history, the sorts of records that scholars use to talk about their historical life, they actually pale into insignificance compared to the sort of records that are available about Jesus. How do you, how do you describe the, uh, just the sheer number of uh, manuscript evidence and those sorts of things that, uh, that actually attest to the value and to the authenticity of the Gospels? Well, that's a very good point, Neil. In the case of um, writers like Tacitus, upon whom we depend for the first century Roman history, um, half of Tacitus is lost. We, we, we just don't have about half of the history of the annals of imperial Rome. Uh, they just haven't made it through to us. And in fact, the earliest manuscripts uh, belong to the Middle Ages. So, and it's the same with Josephus. There are just a few copies of Josephus, who is a great source of information about the first century Judaism. But again, there are just a few copies of Josephus. But when you come to the Gospels, uh, by the end of the second century, you have you have uh, the four Gospels collected in a book, along with the Book of Acts, and that's a document called P46. Paul, P45 rather, then P46, you have the letters of Paul and Hebrews, P47, you have the book of Revelation. So that by the end of the second century, we know that these writings have been collected in book form for use in the churches. You go a few years after that, and you find that uh, the tally reminds, uh, it amounts to something like 6,000 actual surviving manuscripts of the Gospels. Um, and then there are translations of the Greek Gospels into Latin and Syriac and Coptic and Armenian. And when you put it all together, it's something like 20,000 or 24,000 part or whole versions of the Gospels. Now, as you compare that with just the few references to Tassus and Josephus, it's just incredible. And what, it's, what it indicates is that the early Christian movement absolutely exploded and spread not only in the direction of Europe, but spread also south into Egypt and, and North Africa, spread to the Middle East. Um, amazingly, those three centres of Christianity produced all these various translations of the gospel, which was an indication of the amazing explosion of these churches. And so you have these numerous hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christian churches speaking different languages, and you have early copies of the gospel that reflect that. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Paul Barnett is our guest. We're talking about a book he is about to release called Making the Gospels, Mystery or Conspiracy? And he loves to deal with those sorts of objections that people have about the reliability of the Gospels. And uh, Paul, if we're talking about objections, what's the biggest objection that you come across? And uh, no doubt uh, you're coming across objections uh, not only uh, on the streets and with people in a conversation, but also uh, in the classroom in an academic sense. But what is the biggest objection? 
Let me uh, prefix a, a response, Neil, by just saying that the word gospel, of course, means good news, as everybody knows. And it is wonderful news, good, best of news, that, that God loves us and Christ died for us and rose again from the dead for us. I mean, how, how good is that to uh, bring us peace with God and a promise of life beyond the grave with God? I mean, that's, that's really super, isn't it? Uh, but it is good news, but it's also true news, good news and true news. And one of the... One of the um, objections that I periodically come across, including in the print media, is that um, it was not Jesus who invented Christianity, but Paul. And it said that, well, after all, you know, Paul, Jesus was a uh, charismatic teacher, um, a wise man, and uh, he left behind a series of wise teachings and he gave a wonderful example of forgiving people who did wrong things to him and so on. But that the real, the real inventor of Christianity, as it came to be believed, was not Jesus, but Paul. Hmm. And it was Paul who really invented the idea of uh, someone crucified to redeem us and someone raised from the dead to redeem us. And so that, that idea, uh, as it were, was associated with a German scholar named William Rader writing about the year 1900. And it was picked up by Kazan Zarkas in his book The Last Temptation of Christ and the William Dafoe movie of the same name. And then the, the whole idea was picked up by people like poet, uh, the pro playwright George Bernard Shaw, and someone as famous as Mahatma Gandhi, and you periodically read it in the um, in the journals of the of the newspapers today. They they like Jesus, they like they like what he said and what he stood for, but they can't stand Paul, and they blame Paul for, as it were, uh, hijacking Jesus and refashioning him in another way, but. Well, that's a kind of cute idea. It, it, it just doesn't fit the facts. Because Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, that word ransom, of course, means redemption. Yeah. It means being set free from slavery. And the slavery in question is uh, the judgment of God. And so Jesus is himself saying that he is the redeemer and then when you um when you get to the early letters of paul you find that there are um teachings that paul didn't invent but which he received one of which was of course the the last supper teaching of jesus when he took the bread and took the wine and said that these symbolize his death which was for them for their forgiveness and also in the first Corinthian letter, there's another saying that Paul didn't invent that goes right back to the immediate time after Jesus, which said Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised the third day, and he appeared alive to all those people. So those those passages, which are embedded in Paul's early writings in the middle 50s, as it were, but they go back to the immediate aftermath of Jesus himself, and they indicate that from the beginning, um, 
Jesus was on about redemption and that this was not just something invented by Paul at all, but it was, in fact, what Jesus intended. But it's a widely held view, but, Neil, um, it just won't stack up historically. And so oftentimes when we think of the Bible, and I'm talking not academics, ordinary people in church life and hearing their local pastor preach on a Sunday, uh, we're hearing that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so you'll hear the preacher preaching from Paul's epistles, or he'll be preaching from the Gospels. Ought we be making some sort of uh, differentiation in value here and actually putting the greater value on the Gospels rather than on Paul? Or how do you see the whole thing here, uh, Paul? Because, uh, you know, are they all equal or or do we give actually extra weight to what happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Well, I don't think in the end we can put extra weight on any part of the Bible uh, Jesus looked back on the Old Testament and said it was the Word of God, um, and the Gospels are clearly the Word of God, and the writings of the uh, apostles like Paul and James and Peter and John, uh, they are also Word of God. So it, we, I don't think we can discriminate between one part of the Bible against another not being the Word of God. But having said that, there is something special about the Gospels. They are the focal point of both the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament. Everything points back to Jesus. And, I mean, just consider the impact that the gospel has had on the world, the wonderful stories about Jesus, uh, the wonderful stories that uh, mums and dads have taught their children and, and Christians have taught one another in church and other places. And they are, the stories about Jesus are so enriching and so, so inspiring, uh, so life-changing that, yes, it's all, it's all Bible, but I, I think there is something that is uh, special about the Gospels. And we note that in some traditions, the Catholic and Greek traditions, for example, when the gospel is read, people stand for the reading of the gospel. Some Anglicans do that as well. And uh, I can understand why they do that, because this is this is actual Jesus speaking, or Jesus doing something. And so therefore, without taking away any idea that the rest of the Bible is, is lesser or inferior, we still think that to actually hear Jesus speaking to us is so special that, as I say, some denominations stand for those readings, and I can understand why. And Paul, interesting that we can have this sort of discussion about what's written on the page and what is uh, in contention, uh, what is uh, some of the objections that people have. But uh, what's written on the page is one thing, but the subject matter itself actually adds this whole wonderful new dimension. Of course, if we talk about the Gospels being true and trustworthy, the subject matter uh, Jesus' virgin birth, uh, his miracles, the resurrection. I mean, this is the subject matter of what we're talking about being written on the page. These add new weight to the credibility of the Bible. Yes, indeed. Yes. 
So, uh, so just uh, enlarge a little for us on on your thoughts about uh, this sort of subject matter, because I mean the resurrection, of course, uh, one of the key things that affirms to us uh, the truth and uh, reality of of what happened as Jesus as an historical character, but the miracles that he performed and uh, these other miracles that we're uh, reading about in the Bible. Uh, how do you see those? Uh, Neil, I I think of it like this that the um that the gospel story is bookended at one end by the virgin birth, which is undeniably part of the gospel, and the other bookend, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. So those two bookends, as it were, enclose the rest of the story that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John tell. And uh, it's it's very interesting that... The content of that material between the bookends, on the one hand, is is about Jesus' teaching, say like the Sermon on the Mount or various disputes he had with the Pharisees. But then there are so many of these miracles. In fact, there are about 40 miracles of Jesus in the four Gospels. And if you dissect the source material in the Gospels, you can find that there are more than two accounts of nature miracles like the feeding of the 5,000 or uh, resurrections of people um, like the son of the widow of Nain or um, miracles too with casting out casting out demons. My dog. Your dog's in the background. That's all right. We're on live radio, so uh, we can forgive you. <laughs> I'll just put the dog outside. Come on, Bella, out you go. He's a lovely dog. He's only young. Come on, out you go, sweetie. Go on. Good dog. I think your dog is not going to uh, disturb too many listeners. As we get the uh, conversation going here, Paul, let me just ask you quickly. Here's a, a quick Facebook comment, which is a question from a listener, Alison who says, I'm a committed Christian, but would like an explanation about the verse in Mark where Jesus said, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. She says she's read a couple of explanations and even said this was not meant to be or where it was found. Are you able to help with this? Are you familiar with that particular uh, passage that, uh, that Alison is talking about? Uh, thank you very much, Neil and Alison. Uh, thank you. It's a good question. Um, the question is, does the kingdom of God come with power refer to the second coming of Jesus? If it does, there's there's a problem, because obviously by the time Mark wrote his gospel 30 years after Jesus, um, that had not happened. He said there, there's some standing here who will, etc., etc., um, not, not taste death. So I think the the more likely explanation is that uh, Jesus had proclaimed that the the kingdom of God was near throughout the message of Mark's gospel. Um, But then I think by the kingdom of God come with power, I think he's actually referring to uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit who brought uh, power to those first disciples as they preached the gospel and spread the message about Jesus. So I think it's, it, it's not, a rec- not a reference to the second coming, but a reference to the, uh, to the uh, ascension 
and to the coming of the Holy Spirit to bring power to those first Christians. Thank you to Alison for that question. And you can you can leave a question or a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Our talkback line also open, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Solomon, who is on the line from Sydney. Hi, Solomon. Welcome along. Yeah, good morning. Good morning again. Solomon, what are your thoughts? Um... Well, actually, a thought, just an observation and a affirmation for uh, uh, Dr. Barnett. Um, I, w- I was um, uh, brought up in the Wesley uh, Methodist tradition, and uh, I didn't get uh, the, the the guts to get into the full baptism of immersion until 1990. Now. Um, uh, born again in a boarding school in uh, in Wellington in New Zealand uh, in '78. Uh, so throughout those years until 1990, uh, I then had the courage to uh, to do the uh, baptism. But uh, straight after that, uh, I just want to say the biblical scriptures that I was uh, reading and I was uh, delighting. It was uh, the the wisdom books, uh, particularly Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. And then in the New Testament, I was uh, sort of majoring in the epistles, and I love all Paul's uh, short letters because they were all just short, and then, you know, you, you love the beginning and the ending. But after, straight after my baptism in, in Auckland, in Green Lane Christian Church in Auckland, I, I received a word of wisdom, as in prophetic word of wisdom from an elderly sister in Christ who says, the, the word says, Solomon, my son, if you want to know Jesus, you've got to study the Gospels. You've got to read and meditate and devour everything from the Gospel, and then you'll know Jesus Christ, the mm. Lord and Savior of your life. Solomon, wonderful thoughts there. And I'll ask for Paul's comment because to know Jesus, uh, you need to study the Gospels. Uh, what are your thoughts for Solomon from Sydney? I think Solomon has uh, testified in such a moving way to the power of the Gospels to bring us uh, into connection with Jesus and for us to uh, understand his love for us and what he did for us and for us to reach out to him as our our friend, as a friend of sinners. And uh, that's just so encouraging to hear from Solomon. Solomon from Sydney, thank you so much for sharing your journey and to recognising the value of meditating on and studying those Gospels. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join our conversation today, you might have a question. Uh, You can call us 1-800-316-316. And before we move on, a question from Ruth in Kingaroy in Queensland, who on Facebook asks, why does the Catholic Bible have the Apocrypha and not other Bibles, and not other Bibles? Also, why did the four Gospels yet chosen above other ancient writings, also considered some to be Gospels. So more than four Gospels, only four chosen. What are your thoughts, Paul? Two questions there, really. First of all, about those texts uh, that are called the Apocrypha, and uh, it's perfectly correct. Um, uh, Catholics accept the Apocrypha, a number of extra books for the Old Testament, that Protestants don't. 
I, I don't think I want to go into the whys and wherefores, but just to acknowledge that uh, your correspondent is accurate in terms of that perception. Um, there are, there are, from a Protestant point of view, there are things in the Apocrypha that uh, would be questionable, but, but, but by and large, there's not much in the Apocrypha that would be a cause of division between Catholics and Protestants, just a few items. As to the other question about the four Gospels, well, it's very clear from the early 2nd century that the first Christians in that 2nd century recognised Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. Uh, they were in circulation and use by the, by the year 80 or 90. When you get into the next century, there are an explosion of extra Gospels, um, but they are all clearly belonging to the next century and they all reflect the kind of uh, particular views of uh, Gnostic and other groups. Um, only one or two of them have survived. One of them is called the Gospel of Truth, and you could probably find that online, and you'll find that it's a sort of mystical version of Christianity, not very interested in what actually happened or where it happened. And so the four Gospels, as the four canonical or true Gospels, are characterised by uh, historical credibility and geographical credibility and cultural credibility. But you get into these later Gospels and, and you, you sort of feel, well, I'm in a different world here. I'm not in, I'm not in a, the same world of reality as I'm in with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Wonderful response. Uh, those Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are the ones that have the credibility. Uh, we're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Heath, who is calling from Sydney. Hello, Heath. Welcome along. Hello, Neil. How are you? Very well, Heath. What are your thoughts? Um, just just thought you said it'd be great to have better reception for Vision Radio back in Sydney, where I am in the western suburbs. But I, yep. I'm tacking into your conversation. I get... I get uh, uh, Paul's comments, um, and I thank Paul. He was one of my lecturers when I was at Moore College doing my wow. Masters. Wow. Thank you for his wisdom and insights and understanding. Great man that he is. Look, um, just an insight that I've got from Spurgeon in that interpretation of you shall not taste of death until you see the coming again. Spurgeon highlights the fact that uh, it's the tasting of death. What does that mean? And uh, he, he says that uh, ultimately Jesus tasted death for us, and uh, the death that we uh, that he tasted for us, we will not taste of death if we believe in Jesus. So we will stand before Jesus uh, when he comes, and that is the interpretation that Spurgeon has on that passage. And I think he's right, actually. Heath, uh, good there thoughts some... there. Let's get a let's get a thought from Paul on uh, on Heath and uh, and Spurgeon's view of that particular scripture. Well, I think what Heath has said is certainly true theologically speaking the question is uh, was that what was meant by jesus when he spoke those words um i mean he, he says there are some standing death some standing here clearly he's referring to the to the disciples who are with him it's not it's not a particular reference to him tasting death it's the disciples who are with him so i think that's the starting point and i think probably a point of difference with Heath at that point. 
Heath, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Paul, I wanted to get into something you alluded to in the segment before the news, where you said that Mark was the first gospel. So I know that listeners might be thinking, well, how did we get a hold of Matthew and Luke's gospel? Because there are similarities and there are differences. And then, of course, John is a different type of gospel altogether. But uh, let's go back into some of this history, because we're talking about the credibility of these gospels. Important to know just how we actually got a hold of uh, these and how each of those writers might have interacted. What are your thoughts on the developing of these four? Okay, well, I believe that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome uh, in the 60s, with, and he's writing on the basis of information that he has from Peter. Now, he's written the gospel, of, Mark has written his gospel really to demonstrate that the real Son of God is not the Roman Emperor, who had Son of God as one of his titles, but the real Son of God is, is Jesus the Messiah, And the climax of the gospel is when the Roman centurion says about the man crucified in front of him, truly I tell you, this man was the son of God. So the point of Mark's gospel is to indicate that the the ruler of the world, the real ruler of the world, was Jesus. And he he, he has cast out demons, and his death is to help people be rid of supernatural evil within their life and to be free. Now, I believe that Mark published his gospel in Rome and copies of it were sent to Matthew and to Luke. Well, one way or another, they got hold of these gospels and they said, OK, Mark is a great gospel, but I've got some extra source material. And so Matthew has taken 90% of Mark, exactly the same order, often exactly the same words, but he has filled it out with wonderful teachings like the uh, Sermon on the Mount, for example. So Matthew's Gospel is characterised by five great blocks of teaching, of which the most famous is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew has very cleverly directed his Gospel to fellow Jews, as he was a Jew, but also to non-Jews, the Gentiles. Luke, for his part is very determined to tell the story of Jesus' travel from Galilee to Jerusalem, chapters 9 to 19, and what it means to follow Jesus, what it will mean to follow Jesus when he's no longer physically present. And so in that wonderful journey from 9 to 19 in Luke's Gospel, you have something like 12 of the great parables of Jesus, like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, which aren't found in other Gospels, but which are so rich in teaching for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus when he's no longer here with us. The Gospel of John uh, is, it starts with the baptism of Jesus and it finishes with the resurrection and in that respect it's like the other Gospels. But its, it's storyline is so different and its manner of expression is so different that there is no way that it has depended upon another gospel in a literary sense. Matthew and Luke have depended upon Mark, but John's gospel stands alone. And it may very well be an early gospel. It may may very well be as early as Mark, but it is absolutely rich in the teachings of Jesus as the Son of the Father 
who, who sent his son into the world because he loved the world, saved the world. So um, there, there you are. There's a <laughs> in a nutshell, and uh, I know that this uh, can be years of study in a nutshell there. And so this appreciation that we have that there were writings of the sayings of Jesus that survived right from uh, Jesus uh, and his ministry. And uh, through that 30-year period, uh, Mark writes his gospel. Uh, in some way, as you say, just to summarize, Mark's gospel was sent or was accessed by Matthew and by Luke. But Matthew had his own additions to add and Luke had his own additions to add, their personal uh, testimony of Jesus in themselves. And yes. that's why we have some differences in the way that the gospels look. And of course, they're written for different constituencies. Uh, so with the different constituencies here for a moment, Matthew uh, typically more towards the Hebrew and uh, Luke more like the historian. How do you then do you describe uh, the, the Mark gospel? Because oftentimes people think of that as some sort of like an evangelistic tract or something like that. Uh, how do you describe the, those differences? Uh, very good question, Neil. I think... Um Mark is written for non-Jews, for Gentiles. Uh, it's written for... Uh, it, it, Mark's gospel is written for all the nations. It's written for the whole world. Uh, and the whole world at that particular time was, of course, the Roman Empire that absolutely surrounded the Mediterranean world. It was, it was the world for, for Mark at that particular time. And what Mark is saying is that this Jesus whom I speak about is the Son of God and he is the ruler and he is the saviour for the whole world. And this pathetic figure, the Roman emperor, Nero at the time, is a nobody. He'll come and go. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And, of course, we understand that the world now is much bigger than the Roman Empire was at that particular time. But as our understanding of the, our world has grown, so our understanding of Jesus has grown and he is indeed the, the great Lord of all. Paul, you have spent time over the years, and we're not talking about your first book here. You've written an awful lot of books, uh, but you've often taken to task those who have been opponents of the Bible, the credibility of the Gospels, and uh, you've even uh, addressed the attacks of those so-called new atheists because there are attackers of the Bible. How important is it for someone, obviously with your training, your understanding, and for others to be able to address these things, whether it's on the street or at the water cooler at your workplace, to be able to address these issues that people have about the credibility of the Bible? Well, obviously, I've, in a sense, I've devoted my life to sort of exploring these issues and defending them. Um, I, I, I'll be absolutely truthful, Neil, here. I, I could not give up being a Christian because I'm absolutely sure in my conscience and in my heart that the Gospels are historically, geographically, culturally true. I cannot... I cannot explain them. I cannot explain the the birth and the rise of Christianity and the documentation of Christianity unless it's based on an absolutely awesome fact and reality. And that awesome fact and reality, of course, is Jesus. So we can be confident, even in this conversation that we've had today, that there is no doubt 
in your mind that Jesus was a genuine figure of history and that the people, the places, the circumstances that we read about in the Scriptures and in the Gospels in particular as we look at those today. This is not mythological. This is not legendary. This is Uh, actually true. This happened, and we can be confident about that. Yes. I'll tell you a story, if I might, Neil. Uh, In one of our many visits to the Middle East, a gentleman uh, who was coming with his wife. His wife was a Christian and he wasn't. But he said, I, uh, I'm not sure whether I'd come. He said I, he said, I don't want to be preached at. I said, well, I can just give you a promise. You won't be preached at at all. You'll be just let to see these places and you can make up your own mind about them and so on. We had a, we had a final meeting. This is many years ago. Um, and I gave people the opportunity to get, share their reactions to the tour, the three-week-long tour. And this gentleman got up and he said, well, I, I wasn't a Christian when I came and I'm not a Christian now. But he said, I have no doubt that it all happened. <laughs> yes. Well, in fact, there's, so that's profoundly powerful. From, where he's gone from here, I don't know. But uh, he was actually very moved. When he said, I cannot, I cannot doubt the truthfulness of it. And important to know that some come to faith quickly and some take years and perhaps even a lifetime before they are in no doubt whatsoever. And uh, the dots are joined, as you were saying a little earlier in your own experience, the penny dropped. And you recognized that you could put your trust in the God of the Bible because of the historic fact of what you were reading about Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, These are are powerful things for uh, for all of us to be considering. Yes. Well, Neil, there we are. That's uh, that's my story. And uh, it's been an interest for many years, and I expect it will continue to be so long as I'm around. Yes, and your book is due out in May. Uh, your North American publisher, Whip and Stock, uh, they'll be making sure it's available globally. Uh, but uh, here in Australia, people will be able to get a hold of your book at uh, all good Christian bookstores, and they'll also be able to get that online. Simply remember the name Paul Barnett, and the name of the book is called Making the Gospels, Mystery or Conspiracy. And it is to be released in May, so I'm not sure you can pre-order right now, but uh, keep that in mind, make a note of it, and uh, no doubt there'll be an opportunity to get a hold of that as it's going to be released. Paul Barnett, just great getting your insights. Uh, just to mention uh, some of your academic uh, roles and history, honorary associate in ancient history at Macquarie University, teaching fellow at Regent College in Vancouver, emeritus lecturer at Moore College in Sydney. It's because you've had such a wonderful uh, grip on these issues that we've been talking about today. It's been a privilege talking to you. Paul Barnett, thanks so much for being with us on 2020. Thank you, listeners. Lovely to have been with you. And thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.